I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a podcast on everything from employment to aircraft carriers. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Lumber Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. I'm Yazad, an economist, and I'm Shambhavi, a cell biologist. Hi, and welcome to All Things Policy. Are you sad that Game of Thrones has ended the way it has? No worries, because we have a brand new segment on All Things Policy, the Game of Tariffs, a regular tracker of what is happening in US-China relations. And to talk more about this with me, I have Anirudh and Manoj. So, Manoj, what's the latest that Trump has done? So, we've been so there's been this running joke. It's my way or Huawei. So, the last week we realized that it's Trump's way. Um, essentially, uh, a couple of weeks ago, talks the trade talks between the U.S. and China broke down, um, and that led to a lot of frustration in Washington, which led to Trump finally signing an executive order which effectively bans Huawei and other Chinese companies, telecom companies, from operating in the U.S. market. Um, that's something that he'd been threatening for over a year. But that was like the small sort of bit of it. That was a tiny thing. The big bomb was really this uh, uh, order by the Commerce Department, by the U.S. Commerce Department, which places Huawei and 68 of its affiliates on what is called an entity list. The purpose of this list is essentially that it essentially blocks U.S. companies from selling components to these particular organizations, so Huawei and 68 of its affiliates. And what that does is that if any U.S. company now wants to be selling components to these guys, um, they need to take a special permission from the U.S. Commerce Department and then they can do this, which obviously will not be happening in this case. This is something similar to what happened to ZTE last year, which led to the company essentially crumbling in a very short span of time. Um, and that was uh, a reflection of how dependent it was on U.S. suppliers for its core components. In Huawei's case, uh, we're unlikely to see the same kind of crumbling because Huawei is a little bit more resilient than ZTE. And also, yet there are sort of deep dependencies. So last year, Huawei put out a list of um, core suppliers. Um, It had about 99 core suppliers, which are around the world. Uh, But the most number of the core suppliers were from the US, 33. So big US organizations like Intel, Qualcomm and all, they work with Huawei. Um, So there are two sides of this. One is that Huawei gets hit really badly. The other is that also American companies face a hit because their sort of annual business with Huawei is around, estimated to be around 11 billion US dollars. Um, Google, which provides the Android platform, which is the platform, which is the operating system that Huawei phones use. So this also hits Huawei's phone business and not just its 5G thing. This is like an all-out assault on the company. Um, Some estimates tell us that, so Huawei's overall revenue last year was uh, $107 billion dollars. Nearly half of that comes from its smartphone business. It's the second largest smartphone company in the world. Um, And if Google starts to take action to sort of block Android uh, services, block apps, that really hits a massive amount of Huawei's business. The other component of this is that there's also a second order effect because also companies from, say, Japan, Taiwan, Germany, wherever else, uh, which are dealing with Huawei and its affiliates, um, if they are acquiring components from American companies and then sort of repurposing them or, you know, adding on and then supplying to Huawei, they are probably also prohibited from doing this anymore. So there have been a couple of reports which suggest that German companies have sort of reconsidered this. So there's a second order effect of this also. And the next level of this effect is what it does to, say, markets in India, Africa, where Huawei phones are being sold and where a lot of the consumers use Huawei products. 
Um, so there's an effect on consumers also. So that's broadly what's happened. Um, in the last few days after that has taken place, uh, there have been some revisions from the U.S. Commerce Department. Uh, Anirudh, you could tell us a little bit about that. So um, it was really surprising for me to check my phone yesterday and see that Google had decided to say that Huawei can't use future versions of Android. More importantly, can't use Google Play Store, right? Because considering the sheer size of the smartphone market and the app market, considering the number of people who use Android phones, specifically Huawei Android phones, one could say that the U.S. Uh, Commerce Department basically put them on a Huawei to hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was it was really shocking for me that Google would have taken an action that direct uh, because it seemed to me like they were basically shooting themselves in the foot. If they were trying to, why would they alienate such a massive proportion of the global population by doing this? Uh, and the mystery was kind of solved today when the Commerce Department said that, okay, guys, look, there's actually a 90-day window before mm. all these controls kick in. And I think that the deal that they had made with Google was basically just make the announcement, let Huawei stew in it for 24, 48 hours, and then we'll tell them that, okay, look, there's 90 days, let's make a deal. And so, I think that's, that's actually the broad thing, right? You know, And this posturing on either side, okay? So from a Chinese point of view, so from the American's point of view, this is essentially the posturing. That, look, we're going to roll the big guns out if you don't really talk to us. And if you pull the kind of hanky-panky that you did, that we agreed on an agreement and then you revised nearly half of it and sent it back to us uh, at the last minute. That's no longer on. And on the Chinese side, so in the last few days, ever since this, hap this has happened, first there is an official reaction. So your state media and party media has gone into overdrive with nationalism. So there's lots of stuff about American bullying and coercion um, and how the Chinese will continue to fight. I mean, there have even articles that have come up which talk about, oh, we are a 5,000-year-old civilization. Do you think we can't withstand this? We've withstood worst in the past. And... Then there is a social media angle to this nationalism, which is relatively, which is quite organic, actually. It's not something that the party is necessarily entirely driving. Because Huawei is a sort of champion company for Chinese. It's sort of the company that was built from the ground up and has become a massive international organization. So there is a public nationalistic narrative. But there's also a sort of narrative which has been driven apart from, say, these official media reports and social media chatter. So Chinese, uh, so there's now a song written by... Uh, I can't remember who, but one of the guys in standing on Chinese. Are you going to sing, Manoj? Are you going to sing? I can't sing it, but there's a song written by somebody which is essentially about how how the Americans are bullying us and that's doing the rounds on social media. Um, <laughs> the national broadcaster over the last weekend has sort of back-to-back -back played movies which are of anti-American narrative, you know. Uh, and a lot of the sort of American experts watching all this on Twitter are sort of arguing about, oh, so this is your proportional and measured response to us? <laughs> you know, showing movies about Americans being killed? Um, but there's basically an upping of the ante uh, all around. Um, and in all of this, Xi Jinping decided that this was the time for him to go and visit a rare earths company. And he did that with his chief negotiator, Vice Premier Liu He, by his side. Um, so that sends two messages. One is that uh, don't mess with him. He's still my guy. So don't think that if he's coming and negotiating something with you, there is a division. And the second thing is to send the message that if you think you have these weapons that you can use against us, um, we have rare earths. So let's see how you build your flat screen TVs and how you build your you know, mobile phones if we don't supply these rare earths to you. Um, and China has a history of weaponizing rare earths. Uh, so in 2009, 2010, they had done this. Um, and the US is quite dependent. Uh, so it's about 80% of American rare earth supplies come from China. 
China controls the market significantly between nine. I mean, so if you read the statistics, it's anywhere between 90 to 90, 97% of global rare earth supplies come from China. Um, and these are important minerals. These are used in uh, across your modern technology, all the products. And also, um, uh, can, if we can just like walk through the supply chain, right? So you have rare earths uh, that are, that are uh, and you have companies based in the US like uh, Qualcomm, for example, that design processors. Hmm. And you have Intel or maybe uh, Taiwan semiconductors who who manufacture the who take the designs that Qualcomm is making. They yeah. take the raw material from China yeah. and they assemble processors, yeah. which then go to Chinese and American companies who design and manufacture smartphones, yeah. which run on particular operating systems. Yeah. So it's a very complex mm-hmm. and interlinked supply chain. Yeah. And depending on your position in the supply chain and the amount of influence you have over any particular part of it, yeah. you're able to basically force your opponent to come to the table. I think it's very interesting to see that while the Chinese are able to do it the primary resource at the very, very beginning of the supply chain, yeah. all the American leverage is at the very end of the supply chain. Yeah. They're basically saying, you know, manufacture your phone, whatever. Let's see how you do without an operating system. Yeah, and th- I think that is so. Uh, so for the last few years, we've been reading reports about Huawei building and building a domestic uh, operating system, sort of Huawei's operating mm-hmm. system. Um, even if they build it, um, at the moment we've not seen a glimpse of it. Also, but even if they build it, um, I would bet that it's quite. I, I, let me use that word that we use a lot in Indian movies. It's inspired by Android. Uh, <laughs> It'll be significantly inspired by Android. And whether it's efficient, whether it can support uh, some of this other stuff, perhaps you can cater to your domestic market. And maybe Africa. And No, but even for Africa, you need to have access. So uh, China's domestic market is very different as opposed to the markets outside China. Mm-hmm. Um, can you cater to their needs, uh, given that they are far more connected to international sort of social media apps and that system, as opposed to the Chinese domestic market? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and given that half of your half of Huawei's, Huawei's smartphone sales come from the global market, so can you actually cater to that market? Um, so it's difficult times for uh, the company. I think they're so badly caught in this crossfire. And the funny thing is that all of this isn't really even about Huawei. Yeah. Hmm. It's essentially about the deepening mistrust between China and America. Yeah, I was just going to ask, so is this like going down a slippery slope now? Because China obviously also has a control on a lot of the APIs that yeah. go into pharmaceuticals, yeah. right? You don't really want China at some point of time putting its foot down and saying that, oh, we control APIs and you're not so, going to so get any. That's the broad danger, right? So what fed peace over the last 20, 30, 40 years? Uh, it was essentially globalization, uh, which created its own fault lines, but um, essentially it brought trade and economics as this sort of bridge between different countries. If we are going to fundamentally decouple economies, uh, where the notion of comparative advantage and free trade and all of that starts to sort of fall apart, then we are heading down this really, really dangerous sort of era where... Uh, and how... I mean, so look, at, look back at the Cold War. This is an f- analogy that people use right now, that this is a new kind of Cold War. But if you look back at the Cold War, there was really no economic linkage between the two blocks. Mm-hmm. Today, there is deep economic linkage. And the lack of economic linkage in the past made multinational corporations somewhat uh, less important in that dynamic. Today, these corporations are very, very significant. Mm-hmm. So what role do these guys will now have on, say, foreign policies of countries? Um, that's the other thing to look at, because this is now a completely different set of actors. Um, so while you might have states which have their interests and which might feel a certain 
security being the sort of primary interest. And these are actors who have very different interests. I mean, for everything that's happening between the US and China, every other week there are reports of Facebook trying to find ways to enter the Chinese market, despite yeah. what's happening right now. So there are different actors who are moving at different levels for different purposes. Um, and a decoupling, whether it's even possible, at what level, and what dangers does it bring uh, is the issue. Um, so yeah, it's a slippery slope. I yeah, and a lot is happening, right? So there was this NIH investigation into uh, scientists of Chinese descent, and yeah. many have been asked to leave. Yeah. Uh, because Wait, they, what, what is that? People of Chinese descent have been asked to leave from the from U.S. universities uh, because there is fear that they have been they have been linked uh, to institutions in China and they might have been sending information from the U.S. to China. So that's so that's the one of the that's one of the problems of doing this, right? In interconnected economies where corporations and knowledge sort of travels across seamlessly in the world that we live in. Um, a lot of Chinese uh, researchers and scientists. So the U.S. has done this in a ham-handed manner. You've got a problem where you've identified that um, there are Chinese scientists and researchers who tend to be affiliated to the PLA, um, who tend to come to U.S. universities uh, or companies and work with them, and who misrepresent their affiliation with the PLA. Hmm. And they then tend to come and they, they are either involved in espionage. If not espionage, there is a certain amount of you know, just the fact that you're misrepresenting yourself and you're coming for something which uh, you're learning different kinds of things and you're taking that knowledge back to sort of build the PLA's capacities, uh, which otherwise would have not been permitted. Um, that's the, That concern has led to a somewhat increasingly blanket sort of crackdown on uh, PLA, uh, on Chinese uh, researchers and scholars and scientists who are coming probably... You know, there's a very small percentage and proportion of people who come with such an agenda, but the large majority of them are actually, you know, people who are looking to further science, who are looking to further, you know, their careers, who are looking to contribute to the discourse. Um, and when you do something like this, when you start to sort of crack down on visas and, you know, cross-border uh, flow of knowledge, you also somewhere uh, hurt yourself because your society is also enriched. No, see, that's, that's the thing, Manoj. I mean... I agree, like, at an economic level, yes, America is hurting itself. But I don't think that America is going to stop unless Trump perceives that his actions are going to have a clear political cost. Yeah. And the thing is that in this day of, you know, nationalist populism, hmm. it doesn't seem like this kind of activity, even if it's going to harm your economy, cause people to lose jobs, cause corporations to lose money, hmm. it's not imposing a political cost on you. Yeah. Um, and... I agree with what Shambi was saying. It's I think we've been on the slippery slope for a while, to be honest. It's not something new. Uh, the very fact that you now have governments that aren't sensitive to public opinion or to lobbying the same way that governments of the past did, uh, I think means that the age of globalization, and this is not just in trade, but also on the internet, yeah. it's definitely coming to an end. Yeah, I think that's, uh, the other sort of aspect of all of this is that that's the dangerous bit, right? So these fundamental differences of ideology, governance systems uh, have existed for a long, long time. What's buffered this relationship is trade. Um, that's stabilized all these other uh, issues. So it's not like the Chinese just started doing something in the South China Sea yesterday or last year or when Trump got elected. They did that for a very long time. It's not that espionage started soon after Trump got elected. Industrial espionage has been happening for a long, long time, to the point where Obama had even... Can themselves it. do it, I mean... Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> the world's leading... 
So I don't think, uh, and also some of this aspect of industrial espionage, particularly through Huawei, is mm. a little bit overblown because at the end of the day, all devices uh, have some of these so-called backdoors, and the reason for the backdoor is that. Uh, you need to be connected to the manufacturer who's going to essentially provide you upgrades and services mm-hmm. and whatever and to, for him to also him or her to also have data about how the op- device is operating the issue is can you monitor what's being sent over um, that's the primary issue so it's not like even this is something which is fundamentally new what's fundamentally new is that there has been a trust breakdown between these two countries and they are playing a high stakes game of chicken mm-hmm. in which uh which is sort of causing the rest of the world to sort of jump around and say okay now what are we going to be doing because if you look at the europeans um they've gone from saying we recognize the threat we understand there's a problem we also don't want the chinese to come and take over our strategic in- companies and our, you know companies in our strategic industries um we are also wary about industrial espionage i mean one of the biggest companies that was taken down was nortel which was not american mm. uh taken down by chinese espionage so everybody says that we recognize this threat it's about how are we going to deal with this threat from uh, from a european point of view the idea is it's not just china that's changed it's also america that's changed so we need to relook this notion relook at this notion of uh, transatlantic unity we need to relook at relook at the notion of where does europe stand in the world uh, and i mean for the first time i'm reading stuff like europeans talking about things like strategic autonomy and that sort of stuff which is very indian uh, in some ways um so uh, and in response to this huawei ban that trump imposed uh, there was germany the netherlands and france which who outright sort of said that we're not going to be going down this route because they see merit in not decoupling in the way that trump is doing um so yeah it's a strange new world i still refrain from calling it a cold war because it's uh, that terminology just does not fit it kind of evokes this kind of uh, it evokes this notion of the iron curtain so a lot of the yeah. reports uh, i mean a lot of the international media outlets i think bloomberg had this piece which spoke about a digital iron curtain like henceforth today is the day that we know that a digital iron curtain has dropped upon the world oh, uh, maybe 90 days from now depending on what trump does uh, But we, I remember we had this conversation, uh, and I had asked you whether this was a cold war in uh, aspects yeah. of gene editing. Yeah. Because a U.S. and China out trying to outdo each other yeah. uh, and create genetically edited babies, humans, yeah. whatever, yeah. fast. And you had told me that uh, possibly not because China is still trying to curry favor with a lot of the other countries yeah. around it. Yeah. Uh, whereas back in the cold war, there did not seem to be anybody exactly. of significance. And also on some of these things, uh, you need to be. and you need to end up negotiating standards you need to end up negotiating on the ethics of the use of these technologies um and that cannot yes of course you can have this divide uh where you talk on certain things i mean the soviets and the americans did speak about nuclear weapons and had treaties so of course you can talk but given the disruptive nature of nuclear weapons and the the threshold for an ordinary individual to abuse a nuclear weapon yeah. you know the capacity of an ordinary individual to do it as compared to a rogue actor abusing ai or abusing gene editing um, there's a very different level of uh, operation yeah. so you need to actually cooperate to enforce some of the things that you will end up doing because these things are not going to be in the sole control of states and state authorities um, and that requires you to be having this conversation with each side you can't just end up saying that there is uh, this digital iron curtain and we talk only at this state level 
um so therefore i find this cold war analogy slightly um a misfit in some ways who knows what uh, the, the way that you phrased this right now right you said you need to be talking hmm. but that doesn't mean that countries will actually talk yeah i agree so, yeah no i agree uh, and i think this is a great example now right i mean we'll i guess we'll know in 90 days whether or not china actually comes to the table and makes the concessions that trump wants but it doesn't like it's from what you've told me china seems to have painted itself into a nationalist corner yeah. they can't make any major concessions yeah. and trump's obviously not going to do that yeah, i mean i think the chinese uh, can make some of these concessions uh, whether they implement them is another thing and the rate at the pace at which they implement them is the actual sort of meat of the argument but i do think that they can, their issue to me primarily apart from some of the tangible things that we can't be changing um, our laws publicly exp- you know bowing to pressure from the us the public bit of it is very important hmm. um so the, throughout this period of negotiation with the americans the chinese have uh, framed any legislative change that they've made and they've made some legislative change so they've strengthened the ipr law they've strengthened they've changed their foreign investment law so they've made some of these changes how satisfied uh, are is the us administration or american chamber of commerce or the european chamber of commerce and so on and so forth is another thing um i think when the investment law was being passed it before it got cleared the last week before that you had statements from the american chamber of commerce in china saying we are unhappy and then a week later it was that okay we expressed our displeasure they actually spoke to us and they've made some of the changes that we required mm-hmm. uh, there could be more but yeah they've done some of the stuff um but the chinese sort of portrayed that in the context of uh, this broader reform in opening up that look we've been saying that we are reforming and we are opening up and this is part of that um so i don't think the narrative control is going to be that difficult uh, publicly the issue for the chinese leadership would be how that impacts vested interests within the party hmm. and whether there is an elite fracture uh, that happens i don't see any signs of it uh, but then again it's such an opaque system that you can't really make out what's happening um, but i don't see any signs of elite fracture i don't see any signs of uh, the kind of pressure that say we saw a year or so ago uh, uh when xi jinping had his uh, constitutional amendments and after that there was this whole summer of discontent theory that the elites are not talking to xi jinping and there's a massive issue and uh, his uh, liu he is under pressure and heading into their summer retreat meeting of the party um, you're going to end up in a situation where there could be actually criticism of xi jinping none of that happened uh, none of that happened publicly whatever the negotiations were behind the behind closed doors we don't know but i don't see that sort of uh narrative at the moment uh, around china um i think it helps xi jinping to have a nationalistic narrative around him given that the economy is slowing and given that external pressure is growing um but i don't think it necessarily reduces his ability to climb down on some things hmm. um i think he can climb down on some things i don't think it necessarily reduces his ability um it's just about how this happens and the time frame within which this happens because clearly the chinese have seen that certain things we need to do whether it was opening up their financial sector easing up restrictions on the auto sector and they've done all of that but if you're asking them to fundamentally change industrial policy that's unlikely to happen anytime soon the chinese could probably offer a long term period you know a 5 year 7 year 10 year period within which some of this will happen but their requirement was also that the americans take away all tariffs uh, you know remove all the tariffs and the americans were basically saying we'll keep some and we'll keep the option of a snapback uh, in case uh, 
our agreement is not effectively enforced. So those were the sort of sticking points. And I think some of that can be overcome. I don't think that the Chinese would not sort of... I think there are spaces where they can negotiate and they can come to terms. I don't know exactly. I mean, it's very unclear as to what happened that these talks broke down. But the Chinese essentially went back saying uh, nationalism... You can't fundamentally challenge us on principle of sovereignty and all of that. But I think that's a bargaining position that you can climb down from. And I think in June, towards the end of June, when the G20 summit happens in Japan, hmm. Trump will be meeting with Xi Jinping, uh, even if they don't have a formal meeting, which I think they will, although we don't know right now. But even if they have that sort of meeting where they cross paths, there'll be some sort of an agreement on, okay, look, let's ease up a little bit because... For Trump, this is politically beneficial. For Xi, it might get difficult. So there might be some sort of an adjustment that happens at that point of time. We also, because of the elections that are coming up in the US next year. Yeah, maybe, that's why it's yeah. beneficial for Trump, right? Yeah. He, uh, yes. he sounds hard, tough on China. That's the one thing that he has credibility on now. Yeah, because that's that's how the Australian party also won, right? The yeah. ruling party has always been tough on China. Yeah. And the, the, the opposition Labour said that they will ease things with China. And while mostly popular, they yeah. seem to have lost the vote. So that's really the concern for me, right, is that you have Trump and you have the Australians who are really vulnerable to the domestic constituencies because they have to appear tough on China. And while the Chinese leadership might be willing to back down on some things, make a long-term deal, since you have democratic countries that think in a five-year time horizon, they might not be as willing to make a deal with the Chinese. And that might cause the Chinese to say, okay, say bye-bye to your smartphones, everybody. And that's possibly going to be disastrous for the global economy going forward. Oh dear, on that disastrous tone, we're going to stop here. Thank you, Anirudh and Manoj. And do keep listening to All Things Policy, especially episodes on the game of tariffs. We'd love to hear what you think about this chat. Check us out at our Twitter handle at Takshashila Inst on our Quora space, All Things Policy. For the latest analysis and research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, visit our website at takshashila.org.in and tune in for our next episode.